You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Started out with a little Jody, and uh, I don't know the soul that we've had on that doesn't relate to a Jody in one way or the other. And um, I would assume that that's uh, true for our guest today, Wayne Waddell. Wayne, how are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm okay. And uh, just a, we'll just give it a quick, quick background. Um, Wayne was the guest of uh, North Vietnam, and they're esteemed or lousy, maybe, uh, Hanoi Hilton. And uh, this was back in uh, 1967, and we're going to talk to Wayne about it. And, you know, Wayne, I I don't know what uh, our leader, uh, Rick White, told you about the show, or maybe you talked to some of the other folks that we've had on at one time or the other, but we, uh, in fact, we've even started doing a show because uh, we felt like, uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm had already been forgotten, so General Richard Dix does that show for us. But we didn't at the same time. Vietnam has become such a historical war that we wanted to keep it in front of folks. And uh, the stories that the Vietnam veterans have to tell are are very, very important. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned uh, every time or every show, I served in the Vietnam era, but I did not go in country. I did not serve ever in Vietnam, and I don't want to mislead anybody. Or I'm not a politician, so uh, you can't tell when I'm lying. Um, but I, well, you did serve, though. That's what's important. I I, I did show up, uh, and I you know the most important thing I did that uh, before I went into even to basic was a friend of mine said just get you a clipboard with paper on it and no matter what their rank is just say somebody one notch above them told you to carry that clipboard and uh, i did six years of it so anyway but mine was mine was nothing compared to uh what you did and and many of our friends that we've made on uh, on this show and that uh Rick is sent over to uh, discuss their active duty and the time that they served in Nam. And uh, I want to get right into it. Uh, first off, what are you doing now, Wayne? I'm retired, and according to my wife, I'm lazy. <laughs> I tell you what, that retired stuff can be pretty hard work. You have to find something to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's an old joke about the two guys retired said, what are you going to do today? He said, nothing. So I thought you did that yesterday. He said, I didn't finish. 
Well, as long as they're vertical and can still talk about it, that's all that counts, I reckon. Yep, being here is is very special. Were you, uh, were, and I didn't see this in re- reading over the bio that uh, Rick had sent me, were you born in the, in Georgia? Yes, I grew up in Bremen, Georgia, and I went to Georgia Tech, took ROTC, and from there into the, well, I worked for Lockheed for a year out here in Marietta, and mm-hmm. then I went on active duty in the Air Force and. 1957. 57? 57, yes. Wow, okay. Long time ago. Yeah, so Vietnam had really not started heating up then, had it? Oh, no. Uh, First I knew about it was in the early 60s, about 61, 62. Some of my friends were involved in what was then called the Air Commandos, and they were operating in South Vietnam as advisors. To the to the Vietnamese South Vietnamese military. So was your uh, your um, ROTC Air Force ROTC? Correct. Okay. Well, my my youngest son is in the Air Force. He went through um, ROTC at Texas A and M, and then Good for uh, him. and then uh, got his uh, commission and his uh, major now. And and we got some good news. He had. Yeah, he had some tough duty to begin with. Uh, first assignment was in uh, Hawaii, which uh, my wife and I at the time loved. And yeah. uh, then he went on to Korea. And then uh, the last, I don't know whether that's two or three years, three years, I guess, now he's been in uh, Ronstadt, Germany. Oh, and, that's uh, good, too. Yeah. Yeah, he and his wife have, uh, courtesy of your tax dollar, I know I wouldn't be so stupid to spend it, but courtesy of your tax dollar, he and his wife have traveled all over Europe and have absolutely, totally, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And oh, yes. That's this, one thing I had hoped for, but only got to do when I could pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell you, he, uh, and I kid about that, uh, the only thing that the taxpayers for, pay for is him being there, but as far as his travel, he takes care of it himself, and the, and the taxpayer oh, yeah. doesn't have to pay for a dime of it, but... I meant I only got to do it after I retired. You know the the kicker is, and and, and I'm this is not generally part of the show, but um, a, a lot of young folks don't understand today the opportunities that you say military, and everybody takes a breath and sort of steps back, thinking that somebody's going to be shooting at them. But that's uh, the military offers so much for young people. Both That's right. young men and young women. That's now, right. I've got a question for you, Wayne. That uh, I said I wouldn't throw you any hardballs, but I guess this is one of them because we stumped General Dix, we've stumped uh, a couple of birds, and uh, I believe you're a, a bird colonel. And uh, so we're going to see just exactly what you know, how much you know about our military. All right, if I was in the Army, and I was, or the Marines, I could yell, you know, somebody else fall out. Well, you go into your company formation. You have four four platoons, and you stand at attention in your company formation. And I think you do more or less that in the Air Force, but you all call them wings. And I don't know how many, what it's, uh, I don't know if it's a platoon or whatever you all call call your smaller breakdown. Flights. 
flights. Okay, so you, but you got your wing and then your flights within the wing. Okay, what does the Navy have? Say the last again. What does the Navy have? What does the Navy have? Yeah. Yes, sir. At the academy, they have uh, battalions and companies uh, in active service. They have air wings and air groups and then air squadrons. The Navy? Yes. The, the air wing is the unit that's on board the carrier. Yeah, okay. And the actual operator of the wing is the air group, and the commander of that is called the commander air group. And the only reason that I think I know this accurately is that our senior naval officer in prison was a commander of the air group, and his nickname was CAG, and that's <laughs> how he was referred to quite a bit. That was Jim Stockdale. And K-A-G? Pardon? Was it K-A-G? C-A-G. Oh, C-A-G. Commander oh, Commander. Okay, Commander Air Group. I'm sorry. Tag. Okay, now, well, obviously on, on board of a submarine, you ain't going to have any air groups. So what, <laughs> no. what do they call them there? I can't give you a, a good answer for that one. And I guess really on anything uh, besides an aircraft carrier, they wouldn't necessarily have the same formation, would they? I would guess on the submarine that the commander, uh, his rank is typically commander in the Navy, that uh, they would just have sections, hmm. like, like the communications section and the, arm, uh, the uh, engine power plant section technicians, and then the torpedoes or the missile section, whichever they're carrying. Well, uh, That's just speculation. You've gotten further than uh, General... Dicks did, and but I see. I have an excuse. I was a grunt, so we're not supposed to know anything <laughs> well, anyway. I, well, my my excuse is I lived with a bunch of those Navy guys. <laughs> that and that was forced living arrangements, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's correct. All of us were there kind of involuntarily, <laughs> although yeah. we had accepted assignments knowing the risk. And uh, I bet you didn't have very good room service either. Wasn't very responsive at times. That's right. <laughs> but and it and it's really not a laughing matter. It's a it's a matter that I hope that uh, our military n- nobody ever has to go through again. And uh, I was as I was reading your bio, and and I think something that a lot of folks forget is that um, you know everybody thinks of. Uh, uh, the Geneva Convention, which Vietnam never had signed, so that's why they got away with they could treat their prisoners without respect to anything other than if there was enough uh, hostility from outside that they would cool their jets a little bit. But for the most part, uh, they they had not signed the Geneva Convention, so they didn't have to live under it. Well, I may... May be uh, off base a little bit on this one. I was under the impression that they actually signed it, but they, like the Soviet Union at the time, took exception to the the uh, overall condition that if you broke a law within their country, you were subject 
to criminal penalty. And the Vietnamese took the approach that we had bombed and killed people, therefore we were criminals. Hmm. You know, and the blackest criminal was Lyndon Johnson and McNamara, and we were just black criminals. <laughs> huh. uh, well, don't, don't except they pronounced it Brack. Don't don't leave out Lady Bird. Yeah, they they didn't pick on her for some reason. Well, she was the one that was. Uh, her ships were the ones that were bringing supplies to uh, our troops, and uh, somehow or the other, uh, the port. Uh, Portmasters would always get her ships in and get them out in front of everybody else. I don't know how that worked, but <laughs> she, uh, she must have known somebody in a high place. I would say so. <laughs> but anyway, so when you were in, and, and if there's, is there anything that I, 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 we didn't go over this, but is there anything that I shouldn't ask or that, uh, that, no. uh, I'm game for anything. Okay. If I, if I know it, I'll tell you, and if I don't, I'll tell you. If uh, you were captured shortly after you ejected and right. uh, and you spent five years, which, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, earlier this morning, in fact, that uh, I think I would knock the hell out of somebody that says, well, gee, Wayne, I can just imagine what you went through. No, there's no... I couldn't imagine it in a million years, and uh, I don't want to imagine it, and I couldn't imagine it. And I, like I said, my hat's off, my my cowboy hat <clears throat> is off to you and to anyone that, that went through that. And like I said earlier, I hope nobody ever has to go through it again. But once you were captured, you basically knew the gig was up, right? Yes. Uh, as you mentioned, period ejection was a very close call for me. Uh, the parachute did not completely open. It just blossomed enough to break my fall. Wow. And I looked down on the ground, and surprisingly, it looked a lot like North Georgia. Well, scrub brush and trees and big dirt and stuff. But it dawned on me almost immediately that anybody I ran into from now on may be trying to kill me. Hmm. Conveniently, uh, we pilots seem to be a valued resource that if we were captured, it gave the Vietnamese bargaining power. So I was pretty well taken care of uh, for the first day and a half till I got to Hanoi, and that's where I ran into the welcoming committee. Hmm. And I bet they didn't have orange juice for you. <laughs> no, and no champagne. Uh, it was uh, no. It was they, no they welcome to our country, huh? Approach by the time I got there, and uh, you know, and and I've I've talked to a number of of uh, I say a number, not that many, but still uh, uh, several folks that that did get the uh, opportunity at the Hanoi Hilton and what, what was going through your mind as you were floating down and well obviously with your chute not opening correctly you had some other things on your mind survival but uh, 
Were you going through, we all we all went through in some shape, form, or fashion, survival, escape, and evasion, but, you know, when, when you're at uh, floating down from five or 10,000 feet, somebody can be watching you all the way down to the ground, so you figure, even when I get to the ground, unless I'm in a different country, there's not going to be a whole lot of evasion, they're going to be there with open arms waiting for me. Well, so, that, that was what several of my friends... Uh, told me about that had the opportunity to come floating down it they could see the welcoming committee in my case i came down right in the target area so i knew i I was uh, in in a difficult situation shall we say because i could see gun sight about a hundred yards in either direction Mm. and i i just had hope that if i could hold out till dark this was about four o'clock in the afternoon that I might be able to get down the mountain and get out of there until I got to the edge and saw this big drop-off. And so I just kind of hunkered down trying to hide, but with with that much activity around me, and they knew I was down uh, within about half an hour, they came over to me and invited me to go with them. (laughs) (laughs) At gunpoint? At gunpoint. yeah, one of them was carrying a gun, but uh, they didn't threaten me with any of it. I'd, I'd figured out early in the game, I w- although I had a little thirty-eight pistol, uh, we were not going to have a high noon session here. <laughs> I, I don't and, think uh, so. But when I got to uh, Hanoi, well, first off, the Chinese actually shot me down. I learned when I got on the ground, they ran the gun sights across the border, along the border across North Vietnam. And I spent 24 hours with them, and they offered me the opportunity, if I'd cooperate, to go to they'd take me to Beijing, and I'd be treated well. And if you recall, in 1967, Beijing was about as, in my mind, about as far away as, and I declined their kind offer, told them I'd like to go to Hanoi. And I remember the commandant looking at me there and shaking his head. Well, about 24 hours later, I understood why he was shaking his head. Because, <laughs> as I said, uh, when I got to Hanoi, I learned that I wasn't as big and strong and tough as I thought I was. Uh, a couple of little guys uh, with ropes can get you to do and say things you wouldn't do any other time. Hmm. Well, I, you know, I, like I said, I just can't imagine it, and uh, I can't imagine. Um, I, I assume you were there during part of the time that McCain was there. He came in about uh, three months after me. Hmm. He was. We were in different camps for the first uh, three years or so, and then we were in the same camp but in different areas. Uh, I finally met him, shook hands with him uh, up in. Uh, camp along the Chinese border we called Dog Patch in 19, we were there in 1972 well that was shortly before you got out right yes um, now you know as you're coming or you've got these guys around you did the thought ever go through your mind well no sweat I'm from the strongest country in the world they'll get me out of this mess well I had a lot of confidence in that I wasn't sure how it would happen but uh, well, Chuck Norris, the the, the Sante Raid. If you're familiar with that, I remember that. 
Can I just... You there? I think we just lost uh, Colonel Waddell. Uh, yep, we did. I don't know... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but uh, hopefully he'll call back in momentarily and uh, we'll get him back on the line. But right now I want to remind everybody that uh, please, please mark your calendar for January 29th at 2 p.m. And this doesn't happen, well, it doesn't happen at all, really, but uh, this time they're going to have the induction of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame in the rotunda of in the state capital of Georgia and uh, a lot of dignitaries there but us common folks like me uh, we're invited anybody's invited to attend and uh, let me let me yell out a second excuse me one second hey Brett would you come in please um Okay, well, I think that might be the colonel calling back. America's Web Radio. Yeah, I, I know. I am not, let me transfer you back in again. Okay, well, we, we've got the colonel back on, and uh, I guess, you know, I, I guess you noticed that I had sat down and wasn't still at attention, uh, Wayne. And uh, I, I try to always stand at attention when I'm speaking with an officer. And uh, please, please sit at ease. <laughs> anyway, Smoke so them if you got them, light them up if you got. Them. Where did I hear that before? And uh, listen up. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's uh, we, we talk about this, and uh, Richard uh, uh, Dixon and I've talked about it. He's been on a, a couple of times now. And uh, do you know Richard? No, I don't. Uh, he's he's just a general, and uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. And I can understand why he was uh, was, and uh, I guess once a general, always a general. But he he walks in a room and just uh, commands respect. And uh, he's taught. We've talked about the fact that uh, you know things have changed, but uh, that the military, and I, I think you probably had this in in. Uh, even in the Hilton, and again, I, please don't, I'm not ever making light of what you went through or any of our wonderful officers went through or, or enlisted that went through. I don't know, uh, you never hear a whole lot about the enlisted personnel at Hanoi because I guess they weren't flying many planes. But uh, We had three with us in, in the Hanoi area that were uh, from rescue helicopters. Oh, okay. Shot down in late 65. Warrant officers in that type, or, or uh... no? They were like uh, two and three strappers. Hmm. But once we got together, well, actually, before we got together, uh, the senior officer in one of the camps where they were suggested that we try to set up a a variation of a battlefield commission because mm-hmm. they're going through the same thing that we were. And then once we all got together. In, uh, after the Sante raid in uh, 1970-71 and we determined who the actual senior officer of the whole group was he endorsed the the, the idea and they went through, a committee was appointed to do officer training for them 
and they were all promoted to second lieutenant there. And when we got home, President Nixon confirmed it. And one of them uh, went back to go through flight school. He didn't make it. Uh, one of the others uh, went to college and then had assignments. I think all of them retired as majors. Wow. And, uh, now, the in- group, big group of enlisted people that were down south, uh, the Army, principally in some Marines, that were captured down south lived in much worse conditions than we did. They, they were literally deplor- deplorable situation. Many of them were literally in bamboo cages. They'd get a handful of rice in the morning and maybe one in the afternoon or evening. And it was up to them to scavenge and scurry around for anything else to supplement it. And they had a a pretty poor survival rate down there. I think probably a quarter to a third of them died. And then mm, I think it was around 71, 72, they marched them to Hanoi. And to make a comparison to Baton, Baton March uh, would be unfair because I don't know that much about it, but it, it was pretty demanding and mm. uh, a fair number of them did not survive that march. So you're right, their story has not gotten out. The closest no. thing was on uh, Ken Burns' Vietnam series, Dr. Hal Kushner was an Army uh, doctor that was captured and lived in, in one of the groups down there a period of time told the story. And the real heart-rendering part was that he, being a doctor, could not knew things that could be done to help the people, but the Vietnamese refused him any medication or any help. And he said that he personally held five men who died in his arms. Oh. So their story is untold, but it's one that I'd like the American public to know more about. Well, we just started, and we will repeat that story. And, uh, you know, I'd, I had never heard, or, and who am I to say anyway, but the story of the uh, Battlefield Commission's. And why has the public not heard about that? Well, there are some books um, by the guys up there that it's mentioned in, but you're right, it has never gotten what we consider a, a real attention. You know, Wayne, uh, I kept running, uh, as you were talking, I ke- it kept running through my mind that, and I would do this every now and then, but... Uh, Paul Harvey said at best the rest of the story. Correct. And um, you know the, what you were just telling it, it, it's got to be tall. And do you know uh, Bob Babcock? Who? Uh, Bob Babcock has Deeds Publishing, and uh, he just came out with his book called uh, Ready to Talk. I, I can't say that I know him either. Okay, well, we're going to... Are you going to be there? Uh, are you going to be at the uh, induction uh, Wednesday? 
I'm going to try to make it, but I'm not sure. I've got something else on the schedule that I'm not, I don't know if I can juggle or not. Well, if not, I, do you mind if, we're on the air, obviously, but, you know, it's my station. I can do what I damn well please. So do you mind if I give Bob your your uh, information and have him contact you? Okay. Because I don't think Bob knows this story, and uh, um, it should be told. And we're going to, if you don't mind being on again, in fact, I may call on you to be on a number of times because this is something that, you know, in fact... Well, I don't know. Yet. Do you know of a I, I movie can, that I, that's ever been made? Better yet, I can put you in touch with one of those fellows. Oh wow! Okay, that was commissioned. He yeah, can tell you from the horse's mouth. But I, I don't, you know, and, and I please again. I don't want. There's nothing romantic about war. There's nothing romantic about being shot down. There's nothing romantic about being captured. But with that being said, most movies and most references are to the pilots that were shot down. Correct. And, you know, and what you all went through. But very few ever address any enlisted personnel. That's right. And for reasons that uh, I don't understand personally, they seem to, we have an organization called the Nam Pals. Uh, but they uh, only a few of them participate. They seem to feel that they have their own environment and their own group of people, and I can understand that, and I respect them for doing it. But we would like to to have them with us, but it hadn't worked out yet. I'm I'm curious. Uh, because. Okay, it's like many Vietnam veterans won't talk to anybody that's not a Vietnam veteran. Uh, I'm not a Vietnam veteran. Sure you but, are. Well, on, in, in era only, but um, still, you know, I can talk and relate because of friendships that I had with many, many uh, Vietnam veterans and, right. and many friends that went to Vietnam. But at the same token... Why will these Why will these folks not talk to? It would seem to me like they would. You would. You would be the one that they would talk to before they'd talk to me. Well, that may be true. I don't know. Uh, I know, I know a fair number of the fellows from down south, and I, in fact, I'm going to see uh, a couple of them here this weekend when we get together for what we call our Tet dinner. Uh, that was a special occasion in Vietnam, and some of us used it as an opportunity to get together and visit again. Would you, would you do me a favor and, and tell them about the show and that we would love to talk to them? And I will. If they feel comfortable going on the air, this is, this is you know, <laughs> baby killer. Uh, you're just there to kill babies and destroy, a, you know. And uh, so they threw at it, threw stuff at us in the airport and everything else. And this is the this is the opportunity to explain what really went on. And uh, that's 
basically what the station is dedicated to, is to telling the truth and letting the public know what you all went through and what you went through coming back. And uh, I think you've talked to Lee Ellis, have you not? Yes, sir. Now, he's one of the ones in the area. Oh, okay, yeah. But he he was up north the whole time. He was pilot. Uh, I'm just he's, he's one of the ones around here, but there are a couple of that I think would be uh, good candidates for you, and I'll talk to them Sunday. Please, I, I'd greatly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, just getting the word out to those that, you know, well, let me ask you this. Did you have any trouble transitioning? Transitioning? Yeah. Coming back into home. coming back into civilian life. Yeah. There, well, there were a number of things that, that happened that uh, affected my life significantly. And my father had died while I was gone. Mm. And my wife got a divorce just before I came home. Uh, so my family situation was went to hell in a hat basket. But uh, yeah, the six years that I was gone, uh, a lot happened. Uh, we we had a lot of fun laughing about missing the sexual revolution. But, <laughs> uh, more than that, just society had progressed, and the example that uh, that I've used several times was kind of like Robin Williams in uh, Moscow and the Hudson when they were in New York, and he was out wandering around and got into Macy's and there were just so many things there that was overwhelming to him and he lost control. In my case, I got home and I needed some toothpaste and I went to the drugstore and I saw that I could get some with fluoride, I could get some that was blue, I could get some that was yellow, I could get some that had spiral colors in it and I could get tooth or uh, with baking powder in it uh, and I, I couldn't figure out what I wanted, and so I just went home and, and took my mother's traditional toothpaste recipe of half soda and half salt, and that's what I used for months till I <laughs> I felt confident I could go buy toothpaste. That's interesting. That that you know, do you feel like that uh, after your experience, what they call now and such a big PTSD? And, then, and that's getting personal. If you don't want to answer, you don't have to. With some of that, I, I have some friends who have been diagnosed and uh, got disabilities for PTSD. Yet, when I see them, uh, talk to them, everything seems normal. So, I have been fortunate that I have not had any nightmares. I've not had any flashbacks. Wow. Uh, none of the things that would concern me or make me be concerned about those problems but obviously if any situation affects each person involved a little differently and and I just have to accept that they do and uh, I feel sorry for them but proud that I don't have the problem well you know the, the I think the thing that um, a lot of folks don't appreciate is the uh, the atrocities that I was an EMT before, well, during Nam actually, but uh, you know, and I saw a lot of things. I saw what humans could do to other humans 
here in the United States, but certainly not anything like what Vietnam and North Vietnamese did to some of our troops. And and then I had related stories. My best friend uh, in in both ends of college, he and I started together, and he and I ended together, but he took out in the middle and went to Vietnam. And, and the things that he told me when he came back, he was a Green Beret, and when he came back, you know, oh, no, that, some, they, they couldn't do that. And, you know, he told me stories that uh, even just telling the stories were sickening. And uh, and then, you know, and then there's the human retaliation that you can't see a friend that has been brutalized like the Vietnamese did and uh, not, not respond. And uh, General Dix and I were talking about this, and we talk about it on almost every one of the shows that we do, is that uh, there is no greater fraternity in the world than that of the military, and our sorority for that matter. And, uh, you know, and the fraternity that you and your brothers have to have of of being POWs has just got to be beyond anybody's... You know, you couldn't make it up. No, I had an interesting experience along that line, and in in that that relationship goes beyond your immediate group. About uh, twenty years ago, my wife and I were visiting in Australia, and some people we had met on on uh, some cruises, on a cruise, I should say, and we were staying. With, uh, in their home and the lady's father had been a Japanese POW because he was in the uh, Australian army and they were at that time stationed in Singapore and when the Japanese took him over he was prisoner there we introduced ourselves to each other and sat down and it was obvious to me in retrospect as it came on that I felt just as comfortable with him as if I sat down with one of the guys I lived with in Hanoi mm. because we had a common bond mm-hmm. that that transcended of, uh, what uh, 20 plus years that's amazing what a story uh, did you all keep in contact after that for a while? for a while yes uh, but I think he died not too long he was, he was much older Mm-hmm. I met him, obviously. Wow. But, the, you know, you're, when you join the military, you are asked and told to do things that you'd never, that you didn't grow up. You know, you may have played cowboys and Indians, but uh, it's still not like Vietnamese and, and Americans. And uh, oh. it gets a little more serious when you're being shot at. <laughs> a whole lot. And, and you know, and I, and again, and I'll promote this. I promote it on our station all the time, and that is that. Quite frankly, I have a real difficult problem dealing with our government in that. I don't feel like some of our representatives and even senators should make be making decisions for our troops 
when they haven't been there and haven't done that. Even to the even to the least degree, like I was, I, you couldn't get any lower than I was. But even to the least degree, um, we were trained, same as any other uh, eleven Bravo was, and. Uh, for you, for you, for you, jet jocks, that that eleven Bravo was infantry. Yeah. But you were ready to go if needed, correct? Yes, sir. And That's we all happened. we all raise our hand. Right. But you know, until you've been there, done that, I, I just uh, you know, I think I I just uh, I roll over when I hear uh, uh, when they talk about the terms of rules of engagement. Rules of engagement is who shoots first. Period. End of story. It ain't. Let's see what's under your robe. It's, you know, are you going to shoot at me or am I going to kill you? In my opinion, we're not here to play patsy. We're here. You're shooting at me. I'm going to shoot back at you. Well, I agree about the rules of engagement because that was one of the things that hampered us and what we were assigned to do in in our mission and bombing in North Vietnam. Uh, I can't speak to the rules of engagement in the South, but I'm sure they had restrictions that the ones that took place in the Middle East in more recent years, uh, uh, it it just amazes me that even the military leadership would go along with that, that they didn't stand up. Okay, exactly what you're getting at. If the only rule of yeah, the only rule of engagement, and, I, and this was one reason I chose the route that I went, which I'm not proud of, but I, I chose that route, because if you're sending me to war, there's only one rule of engagement, and that's to win. And Should be, that's correct. We could have, we could have, Vietnam would have been over with months, even years, if we had just opened up the um, B-52s like we did at the end. And... Uh, well, I mean, oh well. If if we attack Hanoi, or the the Chinese or the Russians might. Well, you know, so be it. Let's win what we're doing right now, and then we'll worry about the second thing later. You know. But if you're gonna if you're gonna be in a situation, there's only one reason that you call the military in. In my opinion, is to win. I agree wholeheartedly, and. Backing up to your comment about the politicians and their lack of training, the two that were in charge that I mentioned as the blackest criminals yeah. <laughs> were the two that had probably had the least insight in the government, but they felt obliged to, to exert themselves and call the shots because I sat over there several days, several times, I should say, different days, waiting for approval of a target. Each day we were assigned a primary, secondary, and a tertiary, and the primary was always up in the Hanoi area. And it might be a high-value target, or it might be a target of opportunity, so to speak. But we'd sit there waiting for words from the White House, literally. (laughs) We had already been given approval in, in the theater, for the missions, but it was a matter of the White House, and I'm sure you were aware of Lyndon Johnson's famous quote, those boys can't hit an outhouse without my permission. Yeah. That's literally true. 
Well, you know, one of a, a very close friend, I won't mention his name, but he backed up to Lyndon Johnson's 600-acre ranch, which was actually 60,000 acres down in Llano, Texas, and Jimmy took me out and showed me how that son of a bitch hunted deer. And, you know, the way a man hunts tells a whole lot about the person that he is or isn't. And Johnson and my friend Jimmy literally took me within, well, probably uh, 300, 350 meters of Johnson's forestry lookout tower that he had with an elevator. Now, he wasn't going to walk upstairs and work out, you know, break out in a sweat. Had an elevator, and it had three huge spotlights on it. And he would bring his senator buddies or whoever his buddies were. They'd go up in their elevator while the Secret Service were spreading feed around the base of the of the uh, lookout tower. And at night, the deer would come in to feed. They could have been killed with, with rocks. But they'd turn on those spotlights, blind them. And like I said, they could have they could have dumped a rock over the edge and killed them, but they shot them, you know, and uh, that was the only humane thing they did. But and then, you know, Jimmy and his father, uh, Johnson had a guy named George Morris that his was his henchman, and bought property in his name and then transferred it over to the Johnsons. And uh, you know, there's I wonder maybe you could answer this, sir. Uh, why, why do you reckon there was only one television station in the capital of Texas until the, the late 70s? Do you know who owned that sucker? Lyndon Johnson. Lady Bird. Well, it was in her name, yes. Yep. Suppo- supposedly bought with her inheritance. Yeah. Yeah, that, and her inheritance was the gun to... You know, Johnson's, uh, Johnson was not the brightest bulb in the box. Crooked. And, uh, you know, one of the stories that we had in Texas was that uh, when he was running for Senate, one of the times, that uh, there was a guy killed. And uh, the sheriff came up to the guy and was looking at him, and the guy had chains on, and he had, I don't know, six or seven or ten or twenty wounds in the back. And the sheriff looked up and said, damnedest, damnedest suicide I've ever seen. Yeah, I remember that one. And, uh, there was a, there was a place, book out by... It down uh, near the same place where the ballot box was lost that allowed Lyndon to become a senator. Mm-hmm. There was a book called uh, uh, A Texan Looks at Lyndon by J. Everett Haley. Yep, that's and, a good book. Oh yeah, very good book. He and J. Everett Haley and my uncle were friends, and uh, um, I, Johnson was, you know, he, he was sorry from the word go, and had no conscience whatsoever. As did same way with Clinton, but Johnson was a piece of garbage, and he was the wrong person at the wrong time to have in the White House during Vietnam. Wouldn't help any by having the quantitative analysis specialist, <laughs> yeah, who, who only knew how to count due to bean counting, but had no concept of strategy or tactics of military. Well, it's uh, 
it's a shame and uh, thank God it's over and I hope that uh, we never have a, a an elected official in the same position under the same circumstances and in fact I you know I I never figured out why we were there to begin with but uh, I guess somebody somebody saw well it's like we say that is follow the money and you can figure there was only one reason to be there and somebody saw an opportunity to make a lot of money and they did well, um, I hadn't thought of it in those terms but I think you you, you may have hit the nail on the head. Yeah, Lady Bird uh, made a lots of money when her ships would come in, and they would unload and be back at sea before the ones that had gotten there much sooner than she had were still waiting to be unloaded. And that's on, that's only the ships. That doesn't <coughs> include the stuff that was on the ships. And uh, it w- it was just <laughs> if they're looking for a <coughs> for collusion in Russia right now, they should have looked at collusion in Vietnam and who was who was making the big bucks. But that's, again, that's uh, that's why we do the show. I can say anything I want to and uh, it can be backed up generally speaking by books and or by witnesses and um, it's a shame that the public doesn't realize literally what happened during those years. And the, you know, the the horrendous loss of life. By the way, I, I want to mention the fact that uh, you're you're in Marietta, which is not too far from Johns Creek, but uh, the Johns Creek Healing Wall, that's the Vietnam replica, half fifty uh, percent the size of the one in D.C. that okay. toured toured all over the United States, was bought by Johns Creek, Georgia, and has a permanent home now, and will be. The red ribbon will be cut on March the 28th, and everybody in the world is invited to Johns Creek, Georgia, to view the the wall. And if you can't make it to D.C., well, then you can come to Johns Creek, Georgia, and for a nominal fee, you can stay in my extra bedroom. But no, (laughs) I'm kidding about that. That's March the 28th? March the 28th, yes, sir. Well, I'm going to be at a dining in or a reunion that weekend, but I'll... Well, you can come next week, the weekend after. We'll let you into Johns Creek. This is all, by the way, all done by and paid for, not a cent from the taxpayer. This has all been donated money and money that uh, Johns Creek... Veterans Association, Vietnam Veterans Association has raised, mm-hmm. and uh, not a penny of taxpayers' money to buy the wall or anything else. And it's uh, some of the other, like the, I don't know if you're a member of it, but the uh, Vietnam Veterans Business Association has contributed a great deal. And yeah. uh, But it's all, it's all uh, money that has been raised by... Johns Creek Vietnam Veterans Association. Good for them. And uh, they bought the land from Johns Creek, and they uh, they do they've paid for all of the construction and everything. Well, I just made a note of it here to try to get up to see it. Yeah, do you know I Colonel? Uh, next week. Do you know Colonel Mike Mazel by chance? Who? Uh, Mike Mazel. He's the uh, he's the president of Johns Creek uh, Vietnam Veterans Association. Oh, I don't, I don't 
Well, loved him. Love to introduce you to him. Uh, he's he's a great organizer, and I don't want to say he hasn't. No, I'm not going. I'm not going to even imply that he's done it single-handedly. But man, if you ain't got a leader, you ain't got a follower either. Well, that's true. And uh, he is he is uh, one heck of a leader. And uh, with that being said, I'm gonna we're gonna take a quick break, and I'm gonna play Mike Mazel talking about the wall, and we'll come back with Wayne Waddell and uh, his experience and uh, and the uh, massages that he got, and the whirlpools, and the food was fabulous, and we'll talk about his stay at the Hanoi Hilton right after this. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org I just finished a new book. I have clients. I'm doing uh, leadership training for our university faculty and staff tomorrow. Wow. I'm doing uh, training, leadership training for uh, school superintendents from all over the state of Georgia in two weeks. And then I'm speaking at a university to a business school at the end of the month. So, uh, in fact, uh, the 29th of January is the day the, uh, the Georgia Military uh, Veterans Hall of Fame is having their event here in Atlanta. I just uh, remembered for sure it's the 29th of January and I want to be there and I'm going to try to be there but I've got a couple other things going on I got to try to work out so I can be there but all that to say I'm busy I'm very blessed I have a wonderful wife and family I wasn't married when I was there I got married a year after I got back I've been married 45 years and uh, you know uh, and we're back on America's Web Radio and uh we're talking to Wayne Waddell, and Wayne was the guest of the Vietnamese uh, for five years in Vietnam and uh, at the Hanoi Hilton. And I think everybody at one time or the other has heard about the Hanoi Hilton and uh, the atrocities that uh, that the North, Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese committed. And, uh, you know... <sighs> They, they didn't know what they had really run up against uh, with Americans, did they? And uh, I think they thought that, and I would have been one. Had I been captured, I would have, hey, uh, you want my grandmother's name? But at the same token, I don't think they had any understanding of the tenacity of the Americans or American soldier. At least early in the process, that they could tell us about their motivation and their objectives, and we would recognize that and agree with them, as they used to call it, cross over to the people's side. But mm. 
as, as you indicated that statement, they very slowly accepted the fact that <laughs> we weren't going to be on the people's side. We had our side, and we were going to stay there. Did uh, Were you able to communicate at all during your five years with with any of your family? I got to send uh, a letter home on the occasion of Christmas of 1969, and I wrote uh, two or three others over the time. I got a uh, six-line official letter from my wife twice. The uh, first one about three and a half years and the other one about a year later mm. and I got a birthday card from my mother after about four years that let me know indirectly that my dad had died mm. but that was it I'm sorry thank you thank you thank you thank you and uh, that's pretty shallow to uh, be the best a person can do but uh uh, well, they they asked me early in the game. I'd only been there probably two or three weeks. Would you like to write a letter? And I said, yes, that would be nice. Because I had already figured out that if I did, that I was going to have to trade something else for it. Uh, some of the early shoot-downs were able to send letters. Uh, once, once it got started, it seemed to continue pretty well over the time, although there were periods when there was no communication back and forth. Was did the general statement, uh, you had to do something for the Vietnamese if you got a benefit. Oh, I'm sure. Did the, uh, uh, was there any Red Cross activity at all? Not to my knowledge. Uh, the packages that we got later on, I got about three, uh, or so were individuals from the families. Hmm. How did you feel about our government uh, cutting out Lyndon, but just the, our government in general? Well, at that time, uh, I, I considered the, the government acting in the interest of the people, and uh, I had confidence while I was there that the government would find a way to bring us home but I have to admit that when I got back uh, after I'd been back a couple of years I had a tour of assignment in the Pentagon and I got to see up close uh, how politics runs the country uh, instead of what's good for the country it's more of what can I get done in my district or in my state or I can get for myself. And how soon can I be reelected? Yes. It's just sick. That, that seems to be more prevalent now even than it was then with our career politicians. Yeah, and I wouldn't certainly wouldn't disagree with you. I um, do. You, our illustrious government, but had they prepared you for any of this? In in, in really, and I mentioned the we all take uh, survival, escape, and evasion, but 
that's not the real answer. Uh, I just realized that I've talked right out of time. I'm, <laughs> gee, it's eleven o'clock, and I I wasn't paying attention. At all. I was enjoying. Well, not. I don't want to say enjoying, but learning a lot from you, Wayne. And uh, I appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back up and finish the rest of the story. Okay. Uh, one one last comment about uh, the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame has uh, been recognizing a lot of the people who have men and women that have contributed to the military over the years. By the way, as long as they last, I will be there next Wednesday handing out lapel flags. Good for you. uh, You know, as long as they last, I'll be giving them away. So I uh, appreciate it, and we will talk to you soon. want to salute Colonel Rick White for all that he's done for us. And, Wayne, thank you so much for joining us. And we are going to get to the rest of the story. Okay, good. Take care. Goodbye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.